Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. If you wanted two sets of different economic realities being presented by a couple of stories that Bloomberg's reporting on today, one is that the 20-somethings are being priced out of the rental market in London. Perhaps not a surprise when we've seen the rise in rents that has come. So 16% year-on-year gain in September in rental prices. And we've got some reporting around some of those people who are uh, say they can no longer afford to live in the capital. One uh, 28-year-old quoted in the piece saying, what's the point of living in a city when you can't enjoy any of it? Which is something that's a conversation I have to say I've been having with an awful lot of my friends uh, in recent times. And I definitely don't fit into uh, this age bracket. <laughs> but I think it is one of the things that people are thinking about in, of course, the time that we're looking ahead towards the budget. The other people that may not quite garner the same set of sympathy is a new report looking at how much tax is being paid per employee in a bank. Yeah, very sad story. The UK is collecting more tax per bank employee up more than 11% in 2022 compared to the previous year. This is a survey by Trade Association UK Finance. The figures include all the taxes that banks pay themselves as well as income tax and other taxes uh, on the employees. So on average, the government now collects more than £42,000 in tax per bank employee across uh, the whole sector. So I suppose that the industry is saying don't kind of kill the, the goose that lays the golden egg because bankers pay a mm-hmm. lot of tax and uh, make a big, big, big contribution towards the economy. But interesting to look at why they're paying more tax. A lot of this is to do with fiscal drag, which I know is one of your top three favourite forms of drag, Favourite forms of drag, yes, exactly. <laughs> if I ever decided to do drag, I definitely would go with the name fiscal drag. Fiscal drag. Uh, fiscal drag, of course, is is where tax revenues uh, rise uh, because, of, because of inflation. Tax, tax allows... I'm having difficulty with the sentence now I because am, you're thinking I about am. that, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you? You put me off with Essentially, your... Essentially, the tax thresholds have been frozen. As a result, you're paying more tax because you're the, you normally those thresholds rise with inflation. That is not the case. Yes, and this is a key reason why the Chancellor's got more money to play with because he chose to freeze those tax thresholds of course, we've had inflation at double digits for uh, quite a lot of the last uh, 12 months or so. So tax revenues have been rising, well, quite juicily, because people are, are paying more tax because ri- the wages are rising. And uh, that's relevant because... Because it is the autumn statement hey. on Wednesday. And that comes after a pretty busy week for the government. I mean, it's been an incredible week of politics, hasn't it? The Home Secretary's gone, he hit his inflation target. David Cameron suddenly popped up uh, and the immigration plan of course was ripped up by the Supreme Court so the bar is high for next week and Tory backbenchers will be keen or be desperate for something to fix their uh, dismal poll rating well let's unpack all of this with our government reporter Joe Mays and our senior economics correspondent Phil Aldrich who've popped into the studio today now Phil what, what are the chancellor's big priorities going into this week other than finding a, a, a juicy rabbit and not repeating what happened at the mini-budget. Yes, definitely not that. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of course, it's it's just over the year's anniversary since that disaster. Um, the, uh, I, the the gov- the chancellor's priority is going to be around growth because obviously the biggest problem that the the government faces is weak growth. And if you've got weak growth, you have to raise taxes because you know the cost of public services is going up, but you're not generating the the, the general income to be able to do that. So that's that's kind of been the story of why taxes have been rising and the tax burden has been rising. You know, for the last few years and has hit sort of second you know, highest levels since the start of, since the end of the Second World War. So here's going to be focused on growth, but there's going to be a bunch of measures around growth. I imagine he's also going to declare victories. We've said on inflation, or not necessarily declare victory, but he's saying that they are succeeding there. They're getting the biggest threat to the economy under control. So there'll be that message. And then, as you say, I, I imagine there'll be some plump rabbit he needs <laughs> to take out of the hat to uh, um, have some red meat for the, uh, for the Tory uh, fan base. Well, you and Joe Mays have been out catching some of those rabbits in advance of next, week, next week's autumn statement. Joe, we're used to getting some of the information in advance. Talk us through some of what you guys have found out about the expected announcements from the autumn statement. Yes, we've picked up quite a lot of what's going to come on the growth side. So one being this extension of the 100% tax relief on capital spending that businesses get, the so-called full expensing policy. We don't know how long that'll be extended by. Quite likely it's made a permanent policy. That'll cost the Treasury about £10 billion a year. So that'll be a, a, a flagship thing. We also expect them to announce reforms to the electricity grid, the so-called great grid upgrade. They see this is very important to kind of the future growth of, of the UK. That's another big measure. Also reporting things like changes to uh, extending business rates relief for the hospitality sector, help the small businesses as well. Hunt wants to kind of give those areas a lift. And then, yeah, I think the big question will be, what's the big retail offer? And as we've been talking about, is that something like a cut to inheritance tax? Is it like a cut to stamp duty? Something that Hunt thinks won't be inflationary, but will will nevertheless be seen as vote by voters as help for them. Um, yes, yeah, so that's what we're, we're kind of looking out for. Phil, there's got to be a good chance of this inheritance tax coming through, this, this cut to inheritance tax coming through, right? He's got this fiscal framework in place, so there are restrictions about what he can do. So if he doesn't have any money, it's going to be harder for him to be able to to give um, to, to, for these giveaways. So, so the estimates are around that he's got about fifteen billion pounds to play with before he makes any uh, policy decisions. Um, and that's know, improved from earlier in the so, year. Yeah, so just about ten billion up from from March. So um, casual ten billion. Yeah, well, I mean that was a, I mean fifteen billion is historically not very not very good, and six and a half billion, which was in March, was the lowest ever. Um, but you know he's he's there's the fuel duty um, escalator, so he's going to scrap that again, like he's done every single time, like every chancellor's done. So that's a four billion cost this year. So there are there are things which are going to which which are going to erode that headroom. He can do he can fiddle the numbers by um, with with his spending. Uh, plans for uh, the d- departments because that rolls forward one more year and normally that would increase in line with GDP but if he if he limits the increase in, in uh, departmental spending to just 1% above inflation which is what the current framework is he might find a bit more room there. These these spending the, the spending um, uh, forecasts for departments are basically not credible as they are so rolling them forward people will raise a lot of questions about that if he does do that. So um, you know, is he going to do uh, the IHT? Uh, you know, possibly halving inheritance, inheritance tax. tax. To his friends. Yeah, yeah. Um, is uh, 
it, it would cost five billion if he was to halve it. And, um, and that's really not a lot of money, is it's, it? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's 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 if you want to do a big giveaway, which feels like a big giveaway, a halving of the inheritance tax rate, that is a cheap bang for your buck because you know if, if you were to halve, infl- you know, the basic rate of income tax that cost that would cost sixty billion or something. So it is a you know, is it's it good economics good. though? Uh, it's. There's lots of questions about that. I mean, the politics is very clear that yeah. basically it's one of the most hated taxes in the country, even by people who don't pay it. They, you know, they aspire to one day being in a bracket where they would fall into that trap. So if they don't, uh, if, if that, if if the, uh, if the if there is no if inheritance tax is lower at that point, and they've been aspiring to it, they they, they quite like the idea. Um, is it good economics? I mean, basically, you go back to Thomas Piketty and all these people who've been calling for wealth taxes for so long because actually this is, you know, you want to... Wealth is basically excess income that's just accumulated. So it does make more sense economically to tax wealth than it does to tax income. But we don't... We're not taxing wealth in this country. And if he, do, if he cuts this uh, tax, then you know, we're going the other direction. So economically, there's certainly not a great move. Joe, what do the Tory backbenchers want to see from all of this presumably income tax inheritance tax is fairly high on their list of priorities what, what, what do they want to see after their difficult very difficult week yeah they want a they want a, a, a kind of a retail offer on tax so an offer where they could go on the doorstep to vote to say look here's how we make your life better preferably through a tax cut so that's why they're a bit skeptical of the big full expensing policy i talked about because that is a little bit hard to explain to voters and it's not clear how that would immediately benefit them so yes yeah, something like an inheritance tax cut would be would be welcomed i mean what they'd really like to see is cuts to things like income tax but as, as phil was saying that that's a lot more expensive and it also has the added element of being likely to be inflationary the government doesn't want to uh, take, take take a risk on that. So, yeah, like I said, a retail offer for voters, and yeah, things like fuel duty, alcohol duty, they always come up. Uh, the Tory MPs will want to see those going in the right direction. Um, yeah, so, something they can sell on the doorstep is what they want. Is that a reflection, Joe, of, of public perception of taxes? Phil was talking about the the, the general hatred, quote unquote, of inheritance tax in the public. Yes, I think so. And as and the, you know, the, the fiscal drag point you were mentioning earlier, that also comes up as in voters would probably very much like to see those thresholds rise. Uh, but the Treasury has been making so much money from uh, keeping those thresholds frozen. So yeah, there, there is that sense that voters in a cost of living crisis want help from the government and, and tax cuts would be one way to do that. Just one, one, I mean, one point to make to add to that is that so since the freeze in inheritance tax, uh, sorry, for instance, since the freeze in income tax thresholds in 2021, I think uh, there's estimates that pe- the person on the basic rate of income tax, so the 20% rate, um, has is now paying £750 a year more in tax. So, you know, people f- will feel that, right, especially in a cost of living crisis. So the, the fiscal drag is, is really, I think, politically quite salient. So, um yeah, it's 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 not a you know, so taxes are kind of in the in the, the gun sites at the moment because it's traditionally a, quite a good way of getting quite a lot of money, isn't it? Without people feeling too much pain, but maybe when inflation is so high, it's actually been it's been you know, people will feel it this this time around. Mm. I want to ask you about um, welfare plans because unemployment's been been rising throughout this year, although it's still relatively low, and of course a lot of people still not back in the labour market. We are expecting the government to say something on this, aren't we? Yeah, the back to growth. I'm sorry, back to work policies. Uh, So we have something like um, 600,000 more people long term sick than before. So it's a big, it's a big contingent of those who are out of work, which is uh, is over 8 million. Um, And uh, in total, the, uh, the, 
the point that the government makes is that they they need to get more people back into the labor force so that they can uh, bring down wages and then they can really clean up the inflation problem more permanently. Um, the way that they're doing that is twofold. They're trying to make it easier for you know people who are out of work with illness uh, to get back into work, and they're also making it they're putting extra sanctions on people who are out of work who sh- who they believe should be getting into work so you've got a quite a tough sanctions regime with some with some efforts to help people and that's and that and there's a bunch of measures which may raise them fifth, about 5 billion quid on the welfare from the welfare budget um uh, which would be presented as a positive economic um, back-to-work um, plan, but will also bring them in this income, which coincidentally the welfare uh, income, if it is around five billion, would be roughly the same as the giveaway on our uh-huh. inheritance tax. <laughs> um, so you could end up with a lot of headlines saying "Take from the poor, give to the rich." It does feel like these welfare reforms, though, have been kind of kind of uh, uh, this stuff's been going on year in year out since the the coalition right i mean because they were doing all this stuff they were trying to do all this stuff getting people back to work weren't they in the in the early 2010s so it's a difficult it's a difficult problem to fix isn't it yeah it's a it's it's become quite a chronic problem since covid so we've we are the only country in europe where the participation rate the so the number of people who are actually engaged in in the workforce of working age are is lower than it was before the pandemic. All the other European countries they've seen a big increase in participation since since COVID uh, since the end of COVID. So you know we do have a unique problem here, which is why people are, are really focused on it and why the government thinks that something has happened in that interaction between welfare and illness um, and sort of working from home and stuff that which which has which has which needs to be addressed because it's becoming a real it's becoming a real cost for the country joe how important is this day for jeremy hunt as chancellor he was brought in to steady the ship is this the moment where he has to step up to a new role of exciting voters i think that's exactly right i think you know, the qualities he brought last year were very much needed then that kind of carbon influence the trusted party veteran and now a change of gear is required you know the conservative party 20 points behind labor in the polls needing to do something to get some momentum back into their administration and that means yes not not being a steady kind of carbon influence but instead being someone who can excite voters and offer something which would make you want to vote conservative and uh yeah so that speaks to being a bit bolder and as we've been talking about doing things that will stimulate growth that will uh kind of catch the eye of the public and but always always at the same time not triggering anything that looks like what happened last year so that is the the balancing act he has to do the tightrope he has to walk um kind of keeping that fiscal discipline but pushing it such that you that you can perhaps make a dent in labor's polling so it's a really really tough task and the pressure on him has only grown after this week where you know the government's flagship random policy that's in tatters you had a, a conference speech from sunak that's now gone largely forgotten you had a king's speech that was pretty underwhelming in the eyes of many so yeah pressure really now on to to unite the Conservative Party and, uh, and and catch the other public. Yeah, it's a pretty tough task for the Chancellor next week. That's our government reporter, Joe, Joe Mays, and our senior economics correspondent, Phil Aldrich. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, while we're thinking about the autumn statement next week and how Jeremy Hunt may be delivering some difficult messages, let us think a bit more broadly about the art of political speeches and a few memorable moments over the years. I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. 
the ladies not for turning. <laughs> Values unrelated to modern reality are not just electorally hopeless. The values themselves become devalued. They have no purchase on the real world. We won in the end, not because we surrendered our values, but because we finally had the courage to be true to them. As a party, we have always been defined by our internationalism. We believe we have a responsibility one to another. We never have and we never should walk by on the other side of the road. The last thing I'd say is that you can achieve a lot of things in politics. You can get a lot of things done. And that, in the end, the public service, the national interest, that is what it's all about. Nothing is really impossible if you put your mind to it. After all, as I once said, I was the future once. That was nice, wasn't it? Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Party conference speech in 1981. Tony Blair in action at the Labour conference in 2006. And then Hilary Benn speaking in favour of airstrikes against Syria in 2015. And that was David Cameron's uh, last appearance uh, at PMQs uh, in 2016. Well, the arts organisation Dash Arts is holding a series of events in England focusing on speech writing this month, which includes politicians, former speech writers and experts in the area. Well, we're joined now by two of them, Jessica Cuniff, a former speechwriter to David Cameron and Theresa May, and Alan Finlayson, Professor of Political and Social Theory at the University of East Anglia. Thanks both uh, for joining us. Jessica, I think we should start with you as a uh, former speechwriter to David Cameron. Uh, was he good at selling messages? I think he was. I mean, it, it's very relevant that we're talking about great um, political communicators right now and um, and David Cameron's certainly one of them um, and yeah very relevant this week because he's now back in cabinet um, I mean if you look at his his career really it was it was giving speeches that kind of turned things around for him back in 2005 he was a you know a young MP standing for the leadership um, he wasn't the favorite by any means David Davis was out in front in, in the leadership contest and Cameron delivered this this great speech in 2005 and really turned things around. And uh, that's what kind of got him into the position of Tory party leader. So, yeah, I think great at selling messages and he was great at selling himself. You didn't get any phone calls about a job this week, did you? <laughs> I'm busy with lots of other things, I have to say, <laughs> but I'm pleased for him. Alan, let's turn to you then. Let's talk about the art form then of political speech writing more broadly. What what is the what are the key ingredients, the key recipe for a great political speech? Well, the key thing for political speech is it needs to start by thinking about the audience, by thinking about who it's for and what effect it wants to have. Often when people get up to talk about politics, they just want to tell you what they know and what they feel and what they think. But a great speech, like the kind of thing that Jessica writes, thinks about how do we address the people we've got in the room? How do we explain things to them? How do we help them to understand things? And how can we give them reasons to agree with whatever we're proposing that will make sense to them? And that's the key to it. A great speech adapts itself to the audience, not to be cynical um, and manipulate them or sell them any old thing, but because it wants that audience to understand and be part of whatever it's being proposed. And that's really, could you say that's pretty similar to, to any other speech, really? 
it is similar to lots of speeches, whether it could be a speech that you're giving in a courtroom or it could be a speech that you're giving uh, at a wedding or something like that. But a political speech is also doing something distinct because a political speech is ultimately asking people not just to feel good about the wedding or find the client innocent or guilty. It's trying to propose a kind of action, something that we should do. If that's just something small like vote for a party or vote for a bill, but it might be something more than that, like change our behaviour about um, recycling or think differently about the economy or something. It's asking us to do an action. And it's got to show us that that action is something that we can do and that if we do it, it's going to make things better. So political speech is also trying to give us a vision of a future that we might create together. And that's very special and potentially very powerful. Jessica, it's, it's also a, a very delicate form to get the balance right in speeches as well. I wonder if you have memories of particular things that you wrote during uh, your time of, of messages that really landed or perhaps something that didn't land that you hoped would. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you never really know how it's going to go until it's delivered. As as Alan says, you try your best when you're drafting it to really think about, you know, is this speech kind of authentic to the speaker? Is it relevant to the audience? Does it connect with people? Does it meet the moment? I mean, they're your kind of key ingredients. Um, but you never really know until the day itself um, how it's going to go. Um, you know, the the I Have a Dream speech, Martin Luther King, he didn't know how that was going to go on the day. He just kind of improvised and, uh, and and brought that up at the time. And obviously it's it made history and it, it changed things um, dramatically for people. So I'd say you never quite know. Um, but there's lots of speeches that I did that I was proud of that I think kind of went as I imagined them. And I'd always try and put myself as I was writing them, think about how they would go down with the audience. Um, but yeah, some obviously didn't didn't land as brilliantly as others. Alan, are big political speeches st- still in, still important? I don't know if I'm just getting old and, and and jaded, but it does seem that in the age of social media, you know, being able to deliver a snappy soundbite, which is probably about six seconds these days, is increasingly important. And, a, and an hour long speech doesn't quite seem to have the same sort of weight as it used to. Well, it's certainly true that most people don't see a politician give a big, long speech like a 60-minute speech. They might just see a clip of it on the news. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It, it might matter just for a few people, for the members of a party that a, that a leader is giving a speech to. They need to feel that that leader is someone they can put their faith in and, and feel happy supporting when they're out campaigning for them. So that matters there. It matters also to the commentators, observers and journalists who are seeing them. And maybe it would matter if more people got to hear them. There is actually academic research that shows that, you know, back in the 1945 election, maybe about half the voters actually saw or heard on the radio a whole political speech. Of course, that went down to about 8, 10% in the the 2000s. But then the researchers also found people saying that they felt they didn't know what politicians really thought, what the reasons were for their policies. So there's a gap there. People don't get to hear an argument developed at length. And I think that's one reason why social media isn't just six minute, six second sound bites, right? One of the things that's very popular these days is YouTube videos, which are often people talking, sometimes in very prepared and careful ways, for an hour or more. I think there's a hunger for more detail and argument and explanation and things that can help us understand the confusing world that we live in. And there's definitely a place there, therefore, for rhetoric, for great speech that does that. Jessica, are you thinking about when you're writing speeches, are you thinking about the soundbite, trying to get that one element? And does it does it come off? Is it is that the bit that gets picked up? I think you you always have in your mind the the bits that are going to stand out and and be pulled out by the newspapers or or clipped 
on the news. But as Alan said, you, you're also thinking when you write a speech about start to finish and the, the whole experience. Um, and there's often more than one audience. So, you know, we're looking ahead to the autumn statement. The Chancellor will be thinking about, you know, the people around him, the people on the benches around him and the party opposite and taking them on a journey for, for his speech. But yes, he'll also be thinking about what's going to be clipped on the news. So you're kind of doing doing two things in that respect. Alan, we've uh, just had two conference speeches uh, a couple of months ago from Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. How do you rate them as political speakers? Well, as, as speakers, I would say I don't want to be too uh, harsh on them. I think they both could do with some, some work in terms of being a little bit more natural, a little bit more charismatic. But the real, the real art there, of course, is the speech writers who help them write those speeches. And I think they've got good speech writers who helped give them a voice, which is definitely theirs. That's part of the art that Jess does, is to kind of not, not give her own words, but help someone use their own voice effectively. I think that came across quite well in those conference speeches. But at the same time, I do think there is a caution sometimes that has come into speech writing. But there's, a, you know, p- politicians are perhaps understandably concerned about things being taken out of context, um, about slipping up and being caught up by by reporters or others who catch a bit of the speech and can hold it against them. And that can sometimes make for speeches that are a little bit too cautious and a little bit too restrained in really going for it, in explaining, not getting over the top, but in explaining fully in a clear and direct way what it is that a politician is committed to and exactly how they think the world should look like and would look like if we supported them. Jessica, I'm I'm conscious that we asked you that you you're not going back to work for David Cameron this week anyway. Um, who would you like to be writing for if you were to go back into the speech writing game in in politics at the moment? Oh wow, um, that's a good question. I mean, I like writing for lots of different people. Um, I thought that the um, Princess of Wales this week gave a, a great speech um, on the sort of early years agenda on early childhood. And really, you know, that was something that we were talking about when when David Cameron was prime minister in government, the kind of what what was called life chances agenda, which is is a bit jargony, actually. But really what it's talking about is giving young people from all backgrounds the kind of opportunities that they need to get on in life um, and to have the sort of privileges that someone like David Cameron and and, uh, the Princess of Wales enjoy themselves. So she delivers a speech the other day as part of this uh, Royal Foundation conference, Mm. and she was really driving that agenda and speaking very personally and passionately i think she's a good speaker and she she's got a platform and she's she's using it brilliantly okay well if she's listening maybe she'll give you a call jessica kniff uh, former speechwriter to uh, david cameron and Theresa may and alan finlayson professor of political and social theory at the university of east anglia thank you very much for joining us now if you're interested in hearing more about all of this the next dash arts speak out events on speech writing are taking place at home in manchester very nice venue on the 21st and 22nd of november and at tabernacle london on the 23rd now you might be forgiven for missing the story we're going to talk about next all of the political news that happened this week but the former ukip leader nigel farage is swapping political exchanges for bush tucker trials as he prepares to enter the i'm a celebrity get me out of here jungle on sunday it appears he's managed to successfully navigate the Australian point-style immigration system that he spoke so much about during the Brexit campaign and, according to one report in the Daily Mail, is being paid a record £1.5 million to take part in the show Down Under. Now, his appearance follows stints uh, from fellow politicians Matt Hancock and Nadine Dorries on the show, but so is there an emerging politician-to-reality star pipeline. Bloomberg's Tiwa Adebayo is here with more on this story. 
What do we think has motivated Nigel Farage to do this, Tima? Well, of course, I'm sure the fee has something <laughs> to do with it. Uh, Nigel Farage said he's turned down the show many times in the past, so I'm sure an elevated fee might have got him to finally say yes. But more interestingly, it seems like he's hoping for a bit of a redemption arc. Uh, he said in the media this week that he's hoping those who hate him might soften a little. Um, and he might just be right. Post-Brexit, we saw Matt Hancock was deeply unpopular, but yet he managed to finish third in I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here 2022. So this might be the popularity boost that he needs. There have been so many politicians, haven't there, in the last few years doing this. Do you think we can draw any kind of conclusion about what it means about our political landscape from all of this? I think we can. I mean, Nigel has said himself that he's going on the show to kind of connect with millions of people who might not be engaged with political news or politics, as it were. Um, and so it really raises the question that if politicians have to go on reality TV to connect with us, is anyone really paying attention to what happens in Westminster? I mean, as you mentioned, we've seen a number of politicians take part in these shows over the years. People like Ed Balls on Strictly Come Dancing, for example. But it is actually a relatively new development to see actual sitting politicians. So sitting MPs like Nadine Dorries and Matt Hancock take part in reality TV shows. Um, but you know their defence that it's an opportunity to connect with voters is actually consistent with a lot of data on declining political participation. So maybe it says that our democracy isn't as strong as we want it to be and people aren't engaged with politics in the way that they should be. Although, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think Nadine Dorries or Matt Hancock have actually faced an electorate since being on I'm a Celebrity. And Nigel Farage famously has never won uh, any of the times that he's tried to run to become an MP in which the is, UK. Which is many. <laughs> so um, I think perhaps it, it, the, his ch chances, if he's hoping to get electoral success out of it, might not be uh, so high. What's, what's kind of in it for Nigel Farage then? You know, is he going to get what he wants out of doing this show, Tina? Well, the jury's still out on that one. Uh, there's an interesting piece in The Spectator this week by a self-described critical fan of <laughs> Nigel Farage. Um, and he said that it's really the wrong decision. He cited Ooh. Matt Hancock's stint on I'm a Celebrity and said that he plummeted to a new abyss of public contempt in the jungle. Um, that's a rather dramatic way of putting it. But I do wonder, with someone like Nigel Farage, who has managed to stay consistently in the headlines, even after Brexit, does he really need something like I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here to get his message across? He's been quite successful at that as of late. Um, he spoke recently about winning the Best News Presenter Award at the Television and Radio Industry Club Awards. Um, and he says that he's kind of moving into a new phase of his career. So he's certainly not short of a platform anyway. I mean, he does ha you know, have his show on GB News as well. Absolutely. So perhaps he doesn't need to uh, camp out in the Australian jungle to get his message across to voters. Yeah, Stephen and I had a really interesting chat with Lembit Opik, who was the former Lib Dem MP, who was uh, also in the jungle. And he told us uh, some of his experiences of what it was like to do that. It was a really good chat. You can see that if you uh, scroll back quite a long way through the uh, the podcast feed. Oh, quick Google, I think, could find you very quickly. That would be quicker. Other other search engines are available too, Adebayo. Thanks so much for talking us through that story as we look ahead to Nigel Farage's entry into the jungle this Sunday. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. 
This episode was produced by James Walcock and Tiwa Adebayo, and our audio engineer was Marifal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Thanks too to Max Green. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.